Hello, and welcome back to the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am really delighted that the next few episodes will be supported by one of my favorite jewelry brands, Alighieri. During this difficult time, Alighieri will be donating 20% of website sales to the Trussell Trust, who are supporting food banks around the UK. Here are a few words from their founder, Rosh Matani, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Nel mezzo del cammino di nostra vita, mi ritrovai per una selva oscura, che la diritta via era smarita. In the middle of the journey of our life, I came to myself within a dark wood where the right way was obscured. When Dante wakes up in the selva oscura, he's completely lost. He has no idea where he's going and he's terrified. One of our most popular pieces is the Leone Medallion, inspired by this first canto when Dante is confronted by the beast of the lion. The lion comes towards him, so terrifying that even the air around him is trembling with fear. Dante wants to give up. And it's at that point when his guide, Virgil, appears and gives him the strength and says, Dante, what are you doing? You can do this. You've got to be braver. And I made the Leone medallion as a reminder to myself to be courageous when I was first starting the brand. And it's continued to be my talisman ever since, reminding me in those moments of doubt that maybe I am strong enough for the journey. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast today is the brilliant head of the History of Art Department at the Courtauld Institute of Art here in London, Dr. Jo Applin. A specialist in modern and contemporary art with a particular emphasis on American art since 1960, Jo is one of the leading feminist art historians in the world, with her research addressing questions of abstraction, ageing, eccentricity, feminism, sexuality and subjectivity. Having studied at Essex University and UCL, Jo joined the Courtauld in 2016 after 11 years teaching at the University of York and as a visiting scholar at Cambridge University for gender studies. The writer of multiple publications, Jo has authored Yayo Kasama, Infinity Mirror Room, Fallai Field, published by MIT Press, Lee Lonzano, Not Working, published by Yale University Press, which was awarded a prize from the National Museum of Women in the Arts, as well as many more. An active critic, she has published widely on contemporary art, regularly writing and guest editing for the likes of Art Forum, The Times Literary Supplement, Oxford Art Journal, Tate Papers and many more. And in 2019, Jo joined the advisory council of the Paul Mellon Centre for Studies in British Art, where we are excitingly recording today. Much like her tireless work on feminist art, Jo's current book is about ageing, art and feminism in American art in the 1940s. So it seems fitting that today I'm so excited to say that we will be discussing the late and great French-born American artist known for her sculptures, installations, paintings and printmaking, the genius who was... Louise Bourgeois. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. How are you doing today? I'm very well. Thank you for having me, Katie. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. So, I mean, your contribution to art history, particularly feminist art history, has been some of the most influential. Louise Bourgeois, as we both know, was and also is still known as, you know, one of the greatest artists ever to live. I think she had a staggering eight decade career. Her work explores so many different sensations from rage and terror to love and protection. And I want to start by asking you, how do you feel when you're in front of a Louise Bourgeois work? What a wonderful question. So I think that you can have so many different 
feelings and responses when you're faced with a work by Louise Bourgeois. And the reason why I always come back to her again and again is because there's always something new and a work that somehow matches so many different kind of emotional and psychological states that there is an immediate address to the viewer that is so devastating in some ways. You know, this is not an artist who tries to make friends with you. This is not an artist who is trying to please you. These are not works based on an appeal of colour or anything other than a direct and quite visceral appeal to your own immediate physical but also psychological state. She's not afraid to kind of go there immediately and the ways in which she does that is primarily through abstraction and that is one of the biggest holds her work has over me is how you can use abstract art to produce such an amazing range of responses. Totally. I mean, I think it's the rawness. I think it's so bodily as well. Whenever you're confronted with one as well, Mm -hmm. I think it's so visceral. I think that Louise Bourgeois has this incredible tendency to make people not just feel, but also think and think about the ways in which her work explores what it means to be a woman, but also a trapped woman, a woman working in the 20th century. How does she expand your mind and your view of the world? So the ways in which I come back to Bourgeois again and again is, um, so firstly, through my teaching, she is an artist who I is like a go-to artist for me when I'm talking to my students and trying to get them to think about quite difficult or big topics that can range from feminism, gender, the body, the complicated relationships artists and we as people in the you know in the world have to our own bodies and I think that she provides immediately a complicated vocabulary through which to do that and the way in which her work is so frequently born of rage or an anger that isn't unfocused, that's kind of laser sharp, enables us to think about a feminism, about a woman artist who is able to face some of the most uncomfortable truths about life and the world in an entirely uncompromising way. And that is intense. And I think she's also often very funny. (laughs) And that has its own power too, which we know as feminists, right? There is a subversive aspect to that kind of the anarchic form of laughter that she can provoke too when you're faced with her work. I think so. It's hilarious how something can be so phallic Mm -hmm. and confronting, but also just bizarre as well. Yes, absolutely. So Louise Bourgeois was born on Christmas Day in 1911 in December in Paris. Tell me about her upbringing and her childhood. So she has a very privileged upbringing. This is an artist who was born into a wealthy middle class family. They were involved in the sale and repair of medieval and renaissance tapestries. This was something that stayed with her throughout her life. So they have a very nice genteel home just outside of Paris where she we discover much later in her life her childhood was not in fact idyllic yeah. and it was marked was she very openly discussed by various traumas and this was primarily one which she would repeat and narrate and make works of art from so she would kind of draw on her own biography in very interesting and very intellectual ways but the short version of her own very long story is that her father had an affair with the english tutor who had been hired to teach the young Louise English. So for her, her early years, which may look very privileged from the outside, were marked by a very complicated relationship to her father, to her father's mistress, who was her tutor. She was brought for me, is how she would frame this. And then her mother. So the tangled web of secrecy and desire and anxiety that this produced really haunts her for her life and it fuels much of the kind of rage around the father figure that we see in her work really from the outset which of course later on as the feminist movement begins to gain traction from the late 60s onwards we begin to understand it as a a more conceptual attack on the patriarchy in fact as a whole but for her it's always rooted in that early family trauma. Yes no absolutely it's so interesting you talking about this because I think that throughout so many different motifs whether it's the spider or the pregnant woman or the sort of sexuality Mm -hmm. or the subjectivity to her work she's constantly revisiting her childhood Mm -hmm. absolutely and this is another thing that I find incredibly powerful about her work is how to negotiate the gap between the biography of the artist and the works they make and the moments that those intersect or where the biographical or the autobiographical is somehow rendered somewhat visible in the artwork is a really powerful moment but the work can't be reduced 
to biography Mm. just as the artist herself is much more than the sum of her experiences and the fact that she uses artworks as a way to work through problems but also to produce something that really sits outside of her own experience too is why her work has such an immediate appeal to many other people and that gap between the art and the life does blur and muddle but she was such an intellectual artist that she was always kind of in control even at her most outraged you know she kind of knows what she's doing absolutely it's so interesting you should say that she's so intellectual as well because am I right in thinking she actually studied even though she was actually making prints as a young child Mm. she was also helping her parents out with the weaving with the tapestries but she also studied mathematics at the Sorbonne absolutely and also interestingly for someone of her age and generation she was a kind of a voracious student and she would enroll on various art courses other artists atelier and so on in Paris so her kind of appetite for learning and exposure to art making once she was in Paris as a young woman was also fueled by her commitment to reading. I mean, later in her life in New York, she actually runs a bookshop for a period oh, of time. Really? She does. Amazing. It's called Erasmus. And it's very short lived. I don't think it makes her a penny, <laughs> but she runs this. And so this interest in books and reading, which of course we know she famously was very interested in psychoanalytic theory. Yeah. Not only did she have her own extended period of psychoanalysis, which was incredibly productive for her but she also would read a lot of Melanie Klein she was very interested in the psychoanalysis of children and even toyed for a period with training as an analyst herself for children wow and this kind of information that she's absorbed through her reading filters through her work in absolutely fascinating ways and this is something that Mignon Nixon has written about most eloquently in her writings on Louise Bourgeois and how we think them together how we think about the works as themselves kind of materializations of a certain psychic reality but at the same time how we weave them together with her own experience as a woman. Absolutely I think it's so interesting I think Something that time and time again with her work, there is such a sort of acute analysis on what's yes. happening in her life, her body, the people around her, mm-hmm. what's surrounding her. And it's so interesting you say about the bookshop as well, because I'm right in thinking that she also was famous for hosting these incredible salons towards yes. the end of her life as well. Yes, absolutely. It's quite interesting when you talk to people who visited her on these, I think they were on Sunday afternoons at 3pm, there was a kind of rules of engagement that you would have to abide by. And these were incredibly difficult. So she's an older, very established artist at this point. So she would have a mixture of art world figures, writers, young artists who were seeking her approval, which was apparently pretty much the last thing you should be oh hoping God, for. I, mean, at I would this. be just, I would be Absolutely. doing that definitely. <laughs> and, and she would, she was ferocious yeah. and committed and serious in the feedback that she would offer. So I think these were, um, but this desire to create you know, kind of a salon and a community, I think, is is a really important part of how we think about her relationship to her contemporary moment. Because, as you say, she's had such a long career. She's been a contemporary artist in the 40s, yeah. a contemporary artist in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And then with her sort of re-emergence, as it were, after 1982, when MoMA gives her this big retrospective yeah. when she's, I think, 80 years old. You know, a major retrospective at that age typically signals the kind of marking the end of your career in some way. And yet for her, it just launched her into an even wider international period of recognition, which with her spiders and fabric works from the 90s really marked her as a contemporary artist even then. And that for me is where the question of age becomes interesting. Yes. So just to go back to the 1920s and 30s, I'm very intrigued about this era because... So she's studying at the Sorbonne in about 1932, Mm -hmm. but in mathematics. And Mm -hmm. at this time, her mother also passes away. And I think that this is something that actually really launches her to become an artist and Mm -hmm. actually take that dive. It's also interesting because I think when you think of Paris in the 1920s and 30s, you think of surrealism, you think of Duramar, all these greats. But what's interesting about her is the fact that, you know, it's actually... She's working at this time, but it isn't until 1938 that she actually then Mm -hmm. moves to New York. And and how does this Mm -hmm. happen? What happens here? Well, so this is very interesting. So you're right. The Paris that she is really coming of age as an artist is absolutely that of the Surrealists. And in fact, her very first apartment when she lived on her own in Paris was in the same building as André Breton, the founder and leader of the Surrealists, his Gradiva Gallery, um, which was showing all of the work of the Surrealists at this time. So she's immediately aware of this environment, not that the Surrealists 
artists had much time for yeah. <laughs> women artists, as we exactly. famously know. Also in that building, there was a prosthesis maker. And this is kind of interesting because prosthetics feature quite a lot in her work, and yes. particularly later with the fabric figures. And it transpired that when she was a young woman in Paris, of course, you would see many returning war veterans of with course. various prostheses because of lost limbs and so on. And so this is a kind of an item that somehow sort of haunts her. And so it, on the one hand, we would love to make a bourgeois a surrealist, but she doesn't really fit very comfortably with that model. And when she comes to New York, and there are a number of emigre surrealist artists there as well for the duration of the war, but she absolutely kind of carves out her own route that is very much distinct from that. And her move to New York, which is in 1938. Yes, she, just before um, World War II. Just before the war. So she meets and marries the American art historian and curator and editor Robert Goldwater and I think he's in Paris researching his PhD thesis at the time so they meet and marry and she returns with him to New York and it's really there that she begins to forge a career for herself in large part I think at first due to his connections he's a very well regarded art historian at this time and so she begins to meet people in the art world and begin to have some exhibitions in New York that really we think of her as an artist that really comes of age in the 60s and then has these various moments but really from the 1940s and 50s onwards she's having significant success with her paintings at first and then her sculptural work that she begins to make and exhibit in the late 40s. Yes, no, it's so interesting. And also, I must add that in the 1940s, she was a young woman, you know, also struggling to bring up a family. She had yes. three sons, one of whom was adopted. Yes. And also to find her place in the kind of New York art world. I mean, if you think about the 40s and 50s, you're thinking abstract expressionism and minimalism. Mm. She lived in this apartment block in Manhattan and she used the roof space, I'm aware, as an open-air studio. And her work was really reflecting at that time the kind of verticality and also the kind of phallic shapes. And then what begins as this incredible series called Personages. Yes, they are the, some of her most important breakthrough sculptural works, the personages that she begins to make. So she shows them in around 1949 at the Peridot Gallery. She has two shows there. First of these is called 17 Standing Figures in Wood. Yeah. And she imagined this as what we'd call today a, a kind of environmental installation. Yeah. So this collection of vertical, slender, wooden, upright forms that variously seem to teeter and balance and others of which seem fairly firmly rooted on the floor. Yes, they and didn't have plinths, did they? She wanted no, you to kind of immerse yourself absolutely, in them. Absolutely, absolutely. And they would be clustered together. And so they feel like figures that you might move among and between. And she was very interesting about these. And she talks about them at the time and since very much as kind of works of mourning in a way and again Mignon Nixon writes very beautifully about these this series of works that somehow about the people she left behind in France and what it is to live in this new environment in Manhattan which she says she loved she loved to be in the city but of course the verticality of the buildings and the architectural has provided a frame for her work right from her early femme maison drawings these kind of house women hybrids which were all about carrying the domestic on your shoulders to simply living in these large buildings unlike anything you would see in Europe at that time and so these were really memorials of a time and these abstract forms for her are very much stand-ins for figures and I think at this moment we start to see abstraction functioning for her in a really complex way because clearly on the one hand these are quite recognisable as somehow approximations of the human form. They're about our height. They stand and address us. But at the same time, they are sort of insistently abstract too. Yeah, no, it's interesting as well, the fact that she exhibits them as lone figures, but also as groups. And it is this kind of conversation. In a way, I mean, the way that my first reaction when I see these works is the fact that maybe she's yearning for Mm -hmm. these friendships and these conversations and this kind of family and protection. I feel like constantly she's building this architectural structure around her. And then at that time, you know, you just mentioned Femme Maison, which was this yes. incredible... Is it a series of paintings or just paintings? She did a series of paintings and some prints of this. This was a form that she would actually return to throughout her career sporadically. But she has this earlier period of the Femme Maison. They are an extraordinary series of paintings. She abandons painting quite abruptly um, once she discovers sculpture. Okay. But these figures, they're quite comical in their own way. These yes, sort of naked are. female bodies, but the top half is often an apartment block or a house. And then this idea of a tortoise-like form, the, yeah. the female body is bearing the weight of the domestic of the home which I think is perhaps about what it is to struggle with the domestic with the familial at the same time trying to forge 
time and a space for yourself to be an artist but at the same time it's about the home you left behind and making a new one in New York so an incredibly powerful series of works and they very subversively upend the notion of the femme enfant of the surrealist yes the notion of the wild free woman as a child of innocence and you know this very kind of problematic surrealist notion of the woman as muse which we're very familiar with she has sort of no time for that really the female body in her work has agency and it has a certain weight in the world totally and I think you know what she was reacting to the surrealist in a way was the fact that the female is not the object but they're the subject and I think when you look at this particular painting Femme Maison from 1947 you get this real sense of trapness and I think the fact that she is creating this truthful depiction of what a woman has to support so she has to support the house the cleaning the children it's as though she can't even kind of move beyond these four walls that are trapped behind her face the fact that she is making this comment about society at this time and the fact that especially women in the 40s I mean women are still very trapped in this day and age but in the 40s they really didn't have this freedom in a way absolutely and what's very interesting there is that you say it's almost like a a work of the women's movement yes but one of her fan maison drawings or i think one of her woodblock prints possibly features on the cover of lucy lippard the very important feminist critic and curator and writer a collection of her essays on women artists and really is the book that is sort of announces her presence in the world as an intellectual feminist critic of art by women and so to have bourgeois on the cover who was much older than many of the other artists figured in there is a real testament to the importance of bourgeois work at that time but also there's the kind of universality I suppose in a way to the kind of motifs that she's interested in that she was working through as you say in the 40s very much alone and at a time before feminism, before there's a language or politics of feminism to which she might subscribe, not that she was much of a joiner. And as we know, (laughs) she's very much of a generation of women artists who were entirely ambivalent about what it meant to declare oneself as feminist, which really meant at that time affiliating with a particular group that was not necessarily something artists of a certain standing or of a certain generation had any interest in doing. Yeah. Absolutely. And then, you know, other works of hers, again, she's making these prints. He disappeared into complete silence. They really show her kind of exploration with this projected psychological states. But also she's making these works called The Blind Leading the Blind as well, which are these very precarious architectural structural sculptures that almost have this such instability as if you know to be a woman it's impossible to hold on to all these different Mm -hmm. kind of perfections in a way absolutely and she really was kind of a pioneer in her own way so when her husband Robert Goldwater passes away the first thing she does is tear out the kitchen in their Chelsea house, which is where the family have lived and she's brought up the children. And she just installs a couple of hot plates. And (laughs) she says, you know, I'm done now. I'm done with the domestic. This is my space. This is my home now. And I've actually had the privilege of visiting her home. I have on a couple of times. And I've taken my students. Everyone's going to be signing up to your class now. (laughs) It's just, it is just something. It's wonderful. And so when you enter, it's nothing's really changed and since she passed away. And so you see how she lived and worked and the sense that this is a domestic space. I mean, that is not at the forefront of yeah. what you see. This is an artist workspace. This is where she lived where she drew increasingly with drawing with working with fabrics and so on and so this wonderful idea that we don't need a kitchen anymore for me is a really powerful moment you know there's phone numbers written on the walls this is not someone who cared for the home as a domestic site to be proud of or to be cared for this was a working artist space yeah absolutely but just to kind of go back to the 1960s Mm -hmm. as well because am I right in thinking in the 1950s she has a kind of decade where she doesn't work so much right so she naturalises as a US citizen in 55 and she's in her early 40s at this point and it's really the early 60s where she begins to exhibit with the new materials that she's been experimenting with and she begins to work with more organic less stable materials and she begins to develop works using plaster latex and rubber and this is an incredibly important moment for her because what it does is it launches her again as a new kind of contemporary artist because (laughs) although she's older she is now working constantly reinventing herself absolutely and this is suddenly she's in conversation formally with young artists like Bruce Nauman, Eva Hesse, and so on. And so this is a really pivotal moment for her. It's pinnacle, really, in 1966, when Lucy Lippard curates 
a show at the Fishback Gallery called Eccentric Abstraction. Yes. And this is quite a small show that has had an enormously important history. Lippard brought together a group of artists working at that time who she felt were both in conversation with the emerging geometric minimalism but was somehow doing something to that minimalist object that somehow worried away at its edges they were working with soft not hard materials if they were working with a grid it was a wonky grid or it was a line that wasn't really true to its geometric division and so I think that there's a sense in which Lippard recognized in bourgeois a mode of working that was both abstract it was also deeply erotic it was very bodily but it really troubled the idea of what sculpture could be at that moment Yes. And at that moment, she is suddenly aligned with this much younger generation of artists who are similarly working with latex and with rubber, with acrylics and with a very different set of materials that really looked away from earlier forms of sculptural practice that had been shown in New York at that time and really differed from that of their contemporaries and peers and often friends, the minimalist artists such as Donald Judd and Robert Morris at that time. So interesting you to say this because as you're talking, I'm thinking about people like Eva Hesse, but also mm-hmm. Elena Shapovlico yes. and, you know, artists who were really dealing with the female body mm-hmm. and sort of fragmentation. And it's interesting that you mention uh, Shapovlikov because the two artists did meet, apparently. And, oh, didn't um, Louise actually have a pair she, of her lips on yes, her bedside she table. has one of the lamps and the first time I went to her house in the bedroom we noticed as a group that there was this Shaposhnikov lamp and as Shaposhnikov's star has begun to rise yes. rightly so in recent With years too. With fantastic exhibition well, right absolutely. now. It's just very exciting to think of this work that had been there and that Bourgeois many years previously was already absolutely attuned to the kinds of bulbous bodily forms that Shaposhnikov was making that of course also connected in complex ways to her own experiences. Absolutely. And also kind of towards the end of the 1960s, she also starts to use marble. Yes. And as well, and some of her most sensual works are Janos Fleury and Sleep 2, which are kind of these bulbous forms that kind of almost acts as a hybrid between masculine and feminine sort of phallic shapes in a way. I mean, these are so dark, these works. Absolutely. And I find it kind of brilliantly perverse in a way that by the late 60s, she goes to Italy and she begins to work with marble and then she's also working with bronze casting. And so we think of these as quite traditional, modernist, certainly, (laughs) um, forms. And yet the things that she's making and (gasps) fixing in these much more stable, expensive materials are like nothing we've ever seen before. They're, they're so every, erotic. They are so erotic. They're visceral. Yes. They're sort of sexy. They're strange. There is something so perverse about producing these strange forms that we can't name in such fixed and familiar materials. Yes, and I they're think, so alien. Absolutely. And the Janus Fleury group that you mention are just extraordinary. So they hang from the ceiling and they have various different kind of jackets or sort of protective shields. Yes, I love the word jackets. (laughs) One of them is like a leather jacket. Yeah. But they're actually, you know, are they kind of part penis, part vagina? Is there something labial about this? Is there something that's about internal organs? You know, the complicated, deliberately willful play with gender feels both incredibly ahead of its time, but also an absolutely powerful statement of her own commitment to a sort of pre-verbal psychoanalytic understanding of the young child before they enter language, before they enter the structures of society that determine who you are and how you identify and how you name yourself. And I think of these as kind of like pulsating pre-verbal forms that are in a state of becoming yes they're neither one thing nor the other but they're a sort of gloriously catastrophically complicated muddle of both and they challenge you to think all of those thoughts as you look at them at the same time making you laugh yes they're a a bit embarrassing (laughs) you know how do you address this what language are you going to use to talk about these and all of this is something that she plays with in one very famous photograph of her that was taken by Robert Mapplethorpe oh gosh I think I know yes. this is, yes. So this is a wonderful photograph. And she says that she was very nervous about being sent to this photographic shoot with Mapplethorpe. MoMA sent her. It was to wow. get a, a photograph for the cover of the 1982 retrospective of her work. And she said she always felt uncomfortable being photographed and she didn't know what to do. So she took props. <laughs> and one of them was her, what she calls her monkey fur yes. coat, um, which hangs in her house. And you brush past it as you move Oh my gosh, I have to go. Um, absolutely. And the other was her sculpture, Fiat which depending which way you look at it is a sort of an erect phallus 
or it's a kind of um or it's named for a small daughter and so what you do with this semi-abstract but insistently phallic form yes. and it seems almost ridged and veiny so once you start down the route of this <laughs> is somewhat phallic it becomes incredibly explicit once you think of it as an abstract erotic form it becomes like something you can't really name and so Mapplethorpe photographs her with Fiet tucked under her arm and so she's nestling it like a baby <laughs> yeah but she has this wonderful sort of grin on her face which is a grin <laughs> shared between her and the photographer because of course we all know what this thing is that yes. she's we know what she's up to <laughs> now what was very and this is a story that has been told by others when that photograph is reproduced on the cover of the catalogue it is cropped and so what we have is the benign smile of an old lady and what is cropped from view is the fact that she's cradling Fiet. Oh so all of the subversive humour, yeah. all of the kind of the wit and the actually quite anarchic humour where she's taken this phallic form, turned it on its side and completely deflated its phallic power by nestling it in the nook of her arm is removed and we're left with this much more anodyne image of the sweet smiling old lady this is a very wonderful kind of moment for teaching the power of the photographic crop but also what happens when a woman laughs as Lucy Rigore would famously talk about this is a subversive moment right when the woman laughs it disrupts at a fundamental level what we expect of her absolutely this is like the cusp of the feminist movement as well Linda yes. Nochlin's about to write why mm-hmm. have there been a great women artist and really it's when mm-hmm. everyone starts taking notice I know that also Louise Bourgeois was very activistic she used to protest as well yes. with her work no am I right in thinking because she was excluded from an exhibition at the Whitney as well so we know that she she was very involved but as you mentioned earlier in 1973 her husband does pass away and in a way her situation changes she starts to get this giant recognition yes. everyone knows who she is within the kind of artistic circles of mm-hmm. New York there are pictures of her with Andy Warhol yes. Mapple, like you said Mapplethorpe yes. and everything but also constantly at this time she's revisiting these childhood traumas such as this work the destruction of the father from 1974 yes. is she constantly revisiting her past what's happening with these works at that time I think she is I mean so when she was invited to produce works for the Turbine Hall at Tate Modern which yes. is one of those early, early installations. The the three towers which you climb up and you are invited to sit and reflect upon yourself in these sort of mirrored cells was called I Do, I Redo, I Undo. And I think this is absolutely an important way in which we can think about her work. And of course, the work of the unconscious as we work through and we return and we repeat. And I think this idea of doing, redoing and undoing is absolutely emblematic of what she's doing as she works through forms, but returns to them. And we know this is a classic motif. Why do we keep doing the things we do would be one more yeah. sort of workaday way of putting that. But why do we do the things we do? It's because we're not done with them yet, that something hasn't been resolved. So I think absolutely it's a life's work for her. And she understands that very well versed in the kind of therapeutic language particularly as I said she went through intensive psychoanalysis and always understood the value of writing and of drawing she kept diaries from childhood onwards and she would keep these routinely and regularly she suffered with insomnia throughout her life and so when she wouldn't sleep she would draw and so art for her has always provided her famous line, art is a guarantee of sanity. Absolutely. Yeah. It's what she does and what she had to do. And her productivity was really quite extraordinary, as well as yes. her range across media, from yeah. fabric, marble, latex, and so on. Absolutely, from painting, sculpture, to installation, Absolutely. to printmaking. It's fascinating. And with this work, The Destruction of the Father, when it gets exhibited... Mm. Is this the first time that she's really addressing this autobiographical trait of hers? So this is an early instance where she's really beginning to provide quite detailed and very kind of poetic, creative accounts of why she's made the work that she's made. So Destruction of the Father is a strange tableau. You just look at it frontally, although it's three-dimensional, and what you're looking at is a sort of a low cave like a mouth or a bodily orifice and you see these latex lumps which are kind of like stumps or teeth and they're also like seats around a long dining table so you're either looking at the inside of a mouth with teeth and a tongue or an abstract rendering of a dining table (laughs) 
and it's lit red. So it's quite kitsch. It's quite yeah. overpowering. And she tells this wonderful story of how her and her siblings would sit at the dinner table with her father holding forth and the rage that this would produce in the children and in the young Louise, who yes. knew exactly that her father was, in fact, having an affair Gosh, with her yes. English teacher. She tells of this fantasy of the children just, you know, tearing him to pieces and devouring him. Wow. And she says, you know, one of her earliest sculptural forms was making a little figure out of bread at the dinner table and then tearing it to pieces and eating it. So this amazingly aggressive language that she employed to talk about her family yes. is so that's a really important instance of that and she begins to revisit it in the 90s with her cells yes. as well where her biography begins to take a center stage in, in a really evocative manner and the same year that her retrospective opens at MoMA in 82 Art Forum published her child abuse which was a very interesting oh, so it's yes. a sort of an artist's inset of several pages which involves photography and text and drawings in which she sort of narrativizes her early childhood and begins to think through that experience of what it was to realize your father was unfaithful to your mother and the complexities of secrecy and deceit that therefore she harbored throughout her life and very famously in 1989 in an interview she said I have three frames of reference they are my father and mother my own experience and my children. And I think this is a very interesting way that throughout the various other encounters that her work might relate to, ultimately, it's this tangled web of yes. the family that remains a mainstay and that haunts her quite profoundly. And in 1980, she purchases this sort of giant Brooklyn studio as well, which allows her work to really grow outwards. Yes. And at that time, you mentioned the cells and these yes. works. I mean, I remember going to the Tate Modern. I think I was about six mm -hmm. uh, when the first exhibition ever. I, that was one of my earliest memories. And then in 2008, I was actually lucky enough to see her shows at Guggenheim and Tate Modern. And I just mm -hmm. remember, I mean, I must have been about 14 at the time. And I remember just being so haunted by these cells. They're almost these kind of architectural, kind of prison-like private chapel space mm -hmm. works. Mm -hmm. I mean... Is this also going back to her childhood as well? With these works, the cells, I mean, what's she trying to say about them? Well, they're just, I think they're an absolutely remarkable moment in her career, which is the a moment where perhaps more explicitly than before, she's creating these architectural structures, these enclosed rooms or cells that really do seem to be a form of world building. Yep. It's as if you're peering into her unconscious yes. or somehow the things that she can't say or that are operating at an unconscious, a psychic level, are somehow given material form. Yeah. So that doesn't mean that when you look at it, you can understand that she's telling a story or that this means this and that means that. That's not what's going on with them. But what is going on is a very disquieting play with memory and evocation and the idea that something might be freighted with meaning and we see beds we see mirrors we see gloves we see casts of hands glass and mirrors the questions of transparency and also the eyes as well absolutely. without any pupils absolutely the idea of a kind of voyeuristic gaze because of course you can only ever peer into these rooms yes. i think they're very intimate body of work given their sort of architectural scale and the sort of ambition that lies behind them so this idea of making a room that is both a comfort and disquieting zone is key to I think how we experience her cells totally and also a kind of exploration into her inner psyche yes absolutely as well which she is so eloquent about herself in her writing and this is absolutely an artist working through and working out who she is and what her experiences are and this language of I do I redo I undo I think applies to the cells as we see her working through these issues and I think that's what gives them a certain charge as well they're not resolved these are not the products of an artist who has the answers yeah. or who is telling you a story about herself and that's what gives them an insistently contemporary Paul as well as these are kind of works in progress. Absolutely. And I think even just going back to her earlier sculptures as well, you know, the trapped houses or yes. the kind of uh, the blind leading the blind, there is this total instability and trappedness yes. that's constantly happening throughout her work. And in the sort of 1990s, I mean, she's really gaining worldwide recognition at this point. Yes. In 1993, she represents the United States at the Venice Biennale. Mm -hmm. And then this decade is really when she begins to create 
the maman. Yes, this is when we begin to see the spiders, which of course we're familiar with from her earliest work. Yeah. But the scale at which she can now work with these steel and then later cast spiders, their effect on the art world, I think, was quite profound. And I can remember the moment where we begin to teach with these and there's this immediate interest in what formal vocabulary as art historians we are going to develop to talk yeah. about these yeah. things, these enormous abstract renderings of protection and fear you know they're called maman the mother of course the mother but the idea of the devouring mother yes or the, i mean they are not warm welcoming cocoons when you walk underneath them they are quite terrifying and i think pointedly so and i think there's something completely amazing about the way these works own and occupy their space totally you know there's something quite bullish about them they take up an enormous amount of space and you have to find your own route through them and they often make me think of the sculptor Philida Barlow who is a huge Louise Bourgeois fan and she talks about her own work as saying you know she likes that kind of elbows out sort of bullish sense in which you can just occupy space and if you think about her amazing work at the uh, Royal Academy uh, yes, yes absolutely where the work's just push against the frame and I think there's something of that with the spiders that are unashamedly claiming that gallery space for themselves absolutely and it's interesting you know coming back to my first question about how do you feel when you're kind of underneath Mm -hmm. these you know they have this notions of protection fear the safe dangerous but also Mm -hmm. strong and weak and the spider is this kind of powerful but also intimidating Mm -hmm. and very scary Mm -hmm. motif but like you're saying when you're going underneath them you know that it's not a real spider, so it's mm-hmm. okay. But also mm-hmm. what you often see when you're underneath is also this kind of sack of eggs, yes. which then gives this other kind of more, not human because they're an animal, but, you know, I guess more intimate sense in them because you're not just in front of this giant frame. There's actually kind of little things hatching in the yes. middle, which gives you this sense of calmness in a yes. strange way. I mean, it might do. I'm a massive arachnophobe, <laughs> yes, so I find them, <laughs> the spiders fascinating. But also because... it's one of those things where you're so afraid of something that yes. you're like obsessed with it. Absolutely. And she knew that yeah. in a heartbeat, that the thing to get you, the spider, it's thing that you catch out of the corner of your eye or that you have a phobia about or that your dread is it absolutely out of proportion to the damage they're going to do to you. I think all of this in a nutshell sums up so much of what her work at its best is able to do which is to provoke and unsettle us yes and she has no desire I think to make you feel nurtured when you walk underneath the mammal (laughs) I think that that is very far from the kind of experience that really we're feeling or that we're invited to experience when we walk underneath those works I think that there is a kind of a power and intimidating psychically charged encounter that the mammon produce and I think that even when they're installed outside yeah. they somehow occupy that space and they also I saw one a couple of years ago installed in La Monnaie in Paris and it was in sort of a, a large oh, wow. gilt fil- um, room and even then it just kind of dominated the space so even when it's in an enclosed environment it's able to gobble up space in a way that her other works perhaps didn't because they tended to be closed forms collapsed soft squashy but they somehow were contained bodies whereas what we're looking at here is a skeletal structure yeah so they're architectural as well and I think they articulate and encapsulate much of her practice this idea of the architectonic there's something graphic about them they're like a line drawn in space yeah but they're absolutely viscerally charged with a kind of subversive feminist power that is terrifying and absolutely devastating it's interesting one of the most incredible experiences I've seen in a gallery ever is Dear Beacon upstate in New York up the Hudson River and there's a Louise Bourgeois spider tucked away kind of upstairs in the attic in the attic and and I just thought this is the most incredible almost like entering one of her cells yes and it was you're in this kind of brick wall it's very kind of eerie outside I went in the kind of March kind of eerie day and you just think this is what this work is about it's tucked up there like the way that she was working you know upstairs or whatever and it's just so charged absolutely and I think that that installation at Dear Beacon is very powerful yes and so I was there in December in fact with my students and so what (laughs) happens is you we had a wonderful time and as you spend your day moving around from the wonderful sculptural abstractions of someone like Anne Truitt through the minimalist 
industrial geometric forms of the 1960s and you slowly make your way upstairs suddenly it's wooden beams and brick walls and so in a way although tucked up in the attic it feels like pride of place because as you spend your day learning and moving around these minimalist forms as you get upstairs it's only natural light at Deer Beacon so by the time you get upstairs the sun is going down in winter and it is every bit as, as dark and disquieting as she could have hoped. Totally. So, I mean, she had this such extensive, constantly reinventing career. She only passed away in 2010, which really isn't that long ago. And I mean, what was she creating towards the end of her life? Because I know she was working up until a week before she actually passed away. Absolutely. So she was working a lot in fabric at that time. Yeah. And we still see many of the fabric swatches and so on in her home that she was working on, um, as you say, before she died. And so these were often sort of patchwork, stitched together, stuffed figures and forms that are quite recognisable as subjects. It might be couples or groups locked into kind of embraces that are either very erotic or they're somewhat aggressive you know this classic kind of duality that we see so often in bourgeois work but also she was making stacks again just as she'd done with her earlier personage forms where long vertical sculptures would have these sort of stacked cushions that would be placed one on top of the other so that dialectic of hard and soft that we really begin to see in the early 60s persisted throughout her work whether it was in the marble and bronze casts that continued through to the spiders or her return to fabric, which was something from her childhood, the textiles, fabric and weaving and stitching. And so that's what she was really doing towards the end. And drawing as well continued to be a mainstay for her. That was really, I think, the thread that runs through her career. Those stuffed heads, though, that are sometimes in cell-like structures, often behind glass, or Mm -hmm. they are just some of the most haunting works I've ever seen in the sense that Mm -hmm. they're these patchwork sometimes heads that are sort of patchwork stuck together and it's as though they're screaming yeah they're trying to get out but yes. they're silent there's such a kind of mutedness to her work as well yes absolutely and i think silence is a key term for her we see that yep. from her earliest works onward which i think could be described as forms of frustration yes. but also internal you know that your internal life is your own and it's sort of however loud it is on the inside, it's fundamentally silent, you know, it's not known to others. And I think that that is something that persists throughout her work, a form of silence. And also the fabrics often she was using were old ones. They had meaning, they had clothed bodies that she had known and loved. There's a connection there that is quite profound, I think, too. Yeah. What do you think art gave her access to? I think it was in quite a serious way. It was how she sort of managed to live in some ways. I think that it was so entirely obvious to her that this was what she needed to do and what she was going to do. It was a real mainstay of her life and her career. And I think the fact that she was so informed and so thoughtful about the ways in which her work could speak to a kind of psychic reality that maintained throughout her career. And she very famously said, I fit into art history like a bug in a rug. She had (laughs) no truck with people that would say, where do you fit? You don't fit. You're not a surrealist. We don't understand how to categorise your work. She had no problem with that. She knew exactly what she was doing or she was somehow in command of what it is she wanted to be doing. Well, I think it's it gave her access to this kind of hidden reality. I think mm. when you look at her work, it's so, I mean, like you were saying, you know, it transcends time, it transcends mediums, movements, mm. everything. She worked for so long. Yes. That's also why. And I think it gave her access to all artists are trying to sort of search for something in their work or mm. trying to make sense of the world. And I think it gave her access to exclaiming this frustration exclaiming this rage but also exclaiming this love and desire I think you know when you look at her works like you were saying before the quilted figures but also with her kind of collaboration with someone like Tracy Emin it's all about this protection and it's all about yes confronting your biggest fears but also trying to access your biggest desires as well there is so much kind of love poured in and I guess she's always trying to make these architectural and protective structures throughout Mm -hmm. her whole life and I think what she wants is just to be protected in some way she Mm -hmm. doesn't want to believe the reality of what her father was doing Mm -hmm. and what her father would have then subsequently done to her mother and I think she's constantly wanting to kind of look after but then I guess it complicates something even further because then she's looking at this idea of the woman and the fact that Mm -hmm. the woman has to look after all these aspects Mm -hmm. and why does the women have to look after Mm -hmm. all these different aspects the children the parents the everything the home the kitchen everything and I think all of these just make sense of 
women, I think if men look at this work, I mean, there's mm-hmm. this fantastic article with Will Gompertz, actually, for his mm-hmm. reaction to Femme Maison, and actually, oh my gosh, women have to go through this. Yes, we do. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think it gave her access to exclaiming all these different personalities. Yes, I agree. I think that what art afforded her is a material articulation of her unconscious. I think that's what we see throughout her practice is an attempt to give form to her inner world. And I think it's something that speaks to us directly because we all have one. Yes. But it also says something utterly idiosyncratic and unique about how she learned to live and love and function in the world. In trying times, life was not easy for her, but somehow making art sort of was. That was her route to making sense of herself. Totally. And what do you think she's taught you? For me, she's always teaching me. I think that bourgeois is my go-to. I think partly because of the education I had. I was taught by Bryony Fur. I was taught by Margaret Iverson and Mignon Nixon's writing. So in a way, my formation as a feminist art historian was through being taught that abstraction and politics and the unconscious can be thought together in complex ways and that ambivalence and aggression and violence and destruction are every bit as valid a vocabulary for thinking and making art as a more perhaps cooler conceptualism and so she is someone to think through questions of feminism and gender questions of materiality and making through questions of the unconscious and as I was saying earlier for me Questions of ageing, what it means to have such a long career and to engage with one's own subjectivity over such a sustained period of time. And I don't think there's anyone better than a bourgeois to help you access those kinds of questions in my own research and writing and in the classroom. Absolutely. And as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we always ask our guests, if Louise Bourgeois was sitting in this room in the Paul Mellon Centre with us today, (sighs) (laughs) apart from being totally terrified, what would you say to her? What a good question. Well, (laughs) because I'm an art historian and I've done my homework, I know that she always would say that she was much more interested in people who were not interested in her. So I would either have to feign indifference, which would be very difficult, (laughs) or I think I would want to ask her more about that moment in the mid-60s and that shift in material and what it felt like to suddenly be immersed in a contemporary art world and set of connections that we still now think about her very much as a 60s artist. So as someone invested in the 60s, I would have about 2,000 questions for her about that moment. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jo. Thank you very much. Thank you all so much for listening to the 22nd episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the completely brilliant Joe Applin on the great Louise Bourgeois. It was so fascinating to hear Joe's personal insight into the artist who was really one of the most pioneering to ever live. This podcast was sound edited by the great Amber Miller. And if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps people find us. And of course, thank you for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me. Katie Hessel.